welcome to another exciting episode of Talks Now. I'm Matt Zuckerman, physician and medical toxicologist at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. And on this episode, we're going to talk to Tom Nappy from the RMPDC to find out about a case he saw of a depressed farmer who decided to take something from the barn and ended up with seizures and screaming. So depressed farmer with seizures and screaming. But first, we'll talk to Brendan Griffin, a new APP at the emergency department, about how he approached a patient with a hand laceration who had an anaphylactic allergy to lidocanes and really all canes. So what do you do when somebody comes in with a small little cut who uh, just can't tolerate the lidocaine? Well, I am here today with Brennan Griffin, one of our new APPs in the uh, department. Hi, Brennan. Hello, hello. I want to thank you for joining me today. And I pulled you in uh, this morning to talk to you about an uh, interesting case that you had recently. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So what was going on? You know, just a simple lack repair, actually, on a, a gentleman who came in. And um, it was of his, actually, his fourth finger of, like, the, the palmer aspect, actually. And it was probably, I would say, maybe three centimeters in, in length. Nothing too Okay, simple, easy thing. Mm-hmm. So you, you're like, I'm gonna do, uh, I'm gonna do a digital block, yep. and I'll wash it out and get it all set. Yep. It went, to, it went to get ready for everything, and was informed by uh, one of the family members that was in the room that last time this patient had received any sort of cane anesthetic, they had actually gone into anaphylaxis and then subsequently arrested and had to be resuscitated. So. Kind of blown away, kind of shocked because I'd never really heard such a, a type one type of hypersensitive reaction to any sort of lidocaine or, or cane type anesthetic. So I spoke with the, the attending that was, that was on shift and, you know, just wanted to pick his mind a little bit about what to give the individual. We had talked about, well, maybe changing to an ester based anesthetic and as opposed to an amide base, as yeah, opposed nice. to an amide base. Um, but more so that's, you know, more like your, you know, your tetracaine, your preparacaine, those sorts of, of things. But evidently, according to the family member, you know, they had, at one point they had tried that. He had also had a hypersensitivity reaction to it. And also that the tetanus shot, you know, that they were given at, at some previous visit, also some sort of hypersensitivity reaction. So there was a lot going on. And evidently this person definitely had a lot of sort of IgE-mediated reactions to things. So we decided not to try to switch within the amide class or within the yester class. Did you start to wonder if the person was a little crazy? A little bit, yeah, because, because you know, you hear people that have, you know, maybe like pruritus or urticaria to these little localized injections, but rarely, and, and I personally had never heard of like a full-blown systemic reaction, type 1 reaction to these types of things. So, yeah, I think definitely that in my head I had the feeling that I wonder if they're just kind of blowing it out of proportion. But what are you going to do? And then if right. they do get a reaction. And then, I mean, I classically, like, people will say they're allergic to it when they go to the dentist. Right. And they accidentally get, like, an intravascular injection with a little bit of epi and their Absolutely. heart rate goes up and they get palpitations. And then people say, aha, you're allergic to it. No, yeah. you, you had an intravascular injection of epinephrine, the normal response is tachycardia and, right. and palpitations. But this person had had local anesthetics used before multiple correct. classes and it had severe reactions to them. Correct, correct, yeah. Which is scary to, to try and put back on them and impossible to convince them that more than likely, you know, this would not happen in the, in this case, you know, if we tried something different. So you so. just gave him a few shots of whiskey and held him down. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was the, uh, you know, just pulled their arms behind their back and uh, went to town. No, no, I wish, I wish, no. But 
so we talked about we talked it out at the desk actually, and it was it was quite a teaching moment. And uh, the attending, you know, kind of posed the question to everyone: What would you use? There was a, a myriad of responses, everything from whiskey and holding them down to, um, <laughs> you know, to like kind of doing like the the cut the finger out of the glove or cut the tip of the finger off, roll it up, or, you know, create kind of that local tourniquet effect. Give it enough time; they shouldn't feel too much. Um, <laughs> Eventually, the finger will die off, <laughs> right, and, then, right. and then just before it does yeah. that, you can suture. We it can shut. suture it shut. And ice? Did anyone the say ice? No. Yes, yes. Actually, one of the other APPs said ice. So there was, you know, there was a couple of different different things that that were brought to the table that probably would have marginally worked, but definitely not achieved. Anyone, anyone say propofol? <laughs> no, no one said propofol. Okay. Although, I guess conscious sedation is always a uh, yes, you know propofol, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so what? Yeah. So what? So what did they come up with? So the um, the attending that was that was working actually said, "Well, have you guys ever tried Benadryl?" And I was like, "No, actually." And, and it and it you know it's starting to think of you know quickly starting in my head starting to run down kind of the anticholinergic anti-muscarinic type effects of, of Benadryl, I was trying to figure out, you know, okay, like trying to, in my head, trying to think through a mechanism, you know, I, in my, I think a lot of chemistry, you know, or in my mind, I think, I think through a lot of things kind of chemically. And so I was trying to think through how would that work compared to like an anesthetic, you know, lidocaine, pivocaine, or, you know, an amide versus ester based anesthetic. So in my head, I, I truly couldn't come up with exactly how it would work, but I was definitely open to, to try it. So I spoke with the patient about it and, um, he was more than comfortable with, with you know having that having that trialed, and it had it had never been trialed previously, so there was no, you know, way to base as to whether or not it would in this it would work in this patient in this yeah. patient. Correct. Yeah, this patient had never. Did you ask uh, him if he'd ever taken oral Benadryl or diphenhydramine? I should say. Uh, no, I did not actually. Oh. So I, I going thinking back on it, I I, I wish I had it, but I definitely you know I, I did go I did do a, a thorough study of. Of allergies and things of that sort to make sure that there was All there was no <laughs> right yeah okay. there was no contraindications but but they were more than more than happy to, to give it a try as opposed to just the whiskey and the and the, and the holding their arms behind their back approach okay so uh, what uh, what amount or dose uh, did you use how did you do it so we used the twenty five milligram per one milliliter that's two milliliters per vial that's used for the IMIV administration of it. And so you so you had the twenty five milligrams per ml, mm-hmm. um, and then you you, uh, you didn't you determined that you didn't need to dilute it that you were just going to use it. And then was the plan to use two mLs or more than two mLs or? So the plan ultimately was to start at two mLs, and and I actually asked the nurse to pull four vials just in case two mLs was not efficient for us, or it just was it just didn't achieve local anesthesia. Um, and and then I was kind of constrained by okay, well, which sort of block do we do here? You know, web space ring. I ended up going actually with the transthecal just because I thought, well, I could do like a low volume, a low volume block. It's on like the flexor surface. Let's just try a transthecal. So I was just very delicate with it, um, you know, there at the MCP joint, just because I wanted to just make sure that I was within the tendon sheath and not just kind of erroneously injecting Benadryl just into the into So just the, the Palmer space. approach versus that versus Correct. The, kind of the um, uh, bilateral uh, dorsal approach. Correct. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. Exactly. Okay. So you did that and then? Did- I did that, let him sit for about 10 minutes, um, then came back, and there was actually 100% circumferential anesthesia achieved of the entire of the entire digit. There was no feeling, no pain whatsoever. Uh, we were then able to, like, to clean and up said, the last aha, I injected the nerves, and now they're, they're dead. <laughs> right, right. No. Hopefully not at that point. But, no, it was, it was very surprising, actually, that, you know, that I was able to 
accomplish that with only two milliliters, I was actually just very, very shocked. I, I was anticipating having to go back and either do a little maybe local around the site or hit, you know, one of the other nerves, you know, around like the ulnar or radial aspect of the finger. Were you afraid to ask the patient how they were feeling? Um, maybe a little bit in concern that they would say my heart's racing. I, I feel weird, but luckily that was not the case. Actually, he was a bit anxious prior to the, the administration of the, of the Benadryl only because of, of pain, mainly just pain and discomfort. But when I went back in the room, he was actually much more appropriate, less anxious, lying on his side, just comfortable actually at that point, which, which kind of changed the game because up until that point, there had been a lot of anxiety associated with having this laceration fixed, mainly based on prior right. experiences with, with canes. And I'm sure a little anxiety in the treatment team, because then you're sort of like, I mean, <laughs> right. this, this is the thing, like, like the fast track patients are supposed to be easy and quick, but you invariably Correct. run into these things that turn something that should be very, very simple into Correct. far more complicated. And then do you know that they didn't, they didn't demonstrate any signs of systemic effects in terms of their heart rate going up or pupils or, uh, you know, flushing or anything like that? Correct. Yeah. And, and I was actually kind of watching him for that, you know, over the, over the, the first little 10 minute period there, just because still it's a, it's a very low dose, not an intramuscular IV type injection, but there's still going to be some, some bit of systemic absorption and subsequent crossover, you know, diphenhydramine as it crosses the blood brain barrier and whatnot. So, you know, I was looking for the, you know, that lethargy, the, and just the anti-muscarinic, anticholinergic side effects of which none really ever presented themselves. It and I was, guess in a way it's almost like prophylaxis against allergic reaction. Correct. Giving diphenhydramine. <laughs> correct. So we were, we were a step ahead of ourselves in the event something went wrong, uh, hopefully. And then you were, so, uh, you were able then to complete the repair. I was, I was able to repair the laceration with no issues, no problems. He was there for approximately an hour and a half. And, um, during the, the entire duration of his stay after the Benadryl was, was applied, there was never at any point a, a lack of anesthesia or, or waning of anesthesia. From the time I started to the time I actually discharged him, the finger was, was still numb. Okay. So, All right. So, so hopefully that lasted. feeling came back. Right. Right. Last. Yeah. Hopefully that feeling came back, but but we were able to achieve uh, a very efficacious anesthesia there for the duration of, of the repair. Yeah. So and so there's a nice there's a nice uh, open open source paper that's available um, available via PubMed and the internet's diphenhydramine as an alternative local anesthetic agent journal of clinical anesthetic dermatology and we'll put a link to that on our site for people to check out and in that article and there's actually a few articles i think from the 60s and things where it's harder to get electronic articles but this one is electronically available and this article kind of mentions using one percent or 10 milligrams per ml diphenhydramine as uh, an anesthetizing agent and I think starts with talking about essentially diluting a 5% or 50 milligrams per ml solution right. down to um, 10 milligrams per ml. And they don't really see um, really any adverse effects um, when I'm seeing in the literature. Exactly, yeah. Um, did you see anything about treatment failure in people where it just doesn't work? I do not recall seeing anything about treatment failure, actually. I recall actually seeing that the, that the 2% solution was proven to be no more efficacious than the 1% solution when compared to 1% lidocaine. And then, so typically we think of the diphenhydramine as um, antihistamine, right. uh, which is why it helps with allergies and also why it makes us sleepy sometimes. Right. 
Also, it can have the anticholinergic side effects from its um, anti-muscarinic effects where mm-hmm. people get that in overdose, especially they'll get that dry mouth, tachycardia, big pupils, altered mental status picture. Right. And I've definitely seen people who um, took too much diphenhydramine for their quote-unquote allergic reaction because they kept getting redder and redder and more and more confused. <laughs> right. And uh, and I remember a nurse, uh, well, I remember triage said, oh, this guy needs more, more diphenhydramine. He's taking a lot and he's still getting worse. And then he was floridly <laughs> anticholinergic from the stuff that he had already taken. <laughs> Absolutely. But in this case, it seems like it works via a different mechanism. Did you see that? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, cause I just did not see any sort of CNS side effects. You know, I did, I just didn't see that anticholinergic toxidrome side of things. Right. So this, so the mechanism for this is not centrally acting on the brain. It's Correct. not that it goes to the brain and removes your ability to feel pain. It's not a mu receptor agonist like opiates. Correct. It's not a dissociative anesthetic. So did you see the mechanism of how it works? Probably working on sodium channel. Right. Sodium, sodium channel blockade? Absolutely. It works okay. like a sodium channel blocker. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's seen a really sick diphenhydramine overdose, it can start to look like a sodium channel blocker right. uh, or act like a sodium channel blocker um, where they get widening of their QRS, arrhythmias, right. yeah. and seizures. And that's a dose-related effect from the overall systemic effects of diphenhydramine. And effectively, what you're doing when you inject it into a tiny area mm-hmm. is you're also, via a dose-mediated effect, sort of overwhelming things and also getting that sodium channel blocker effect, which is exactly how local anesthetics works. There right. are sodium channel blockers. And so you can decrease the opening of the sodium channels and thus decrease the um, creation and transmission of pain. Right, yeah, of the actual potential. Yeah, absolutely. Which is really neat. No, no, it is. It's, And you would think, actually, that being the mechanism, that there are probably other agents out there that could also be used for local anesthetic, but maybe would carry a, a greater side effect profile in the event that systemic effects were, were induced. And I think there's a one-two punch here where you're also, in some respect, you're using these in patients who tend to have a lot of allergic reaction, right? who have some, some angry uh, mast cells. Right. And so by, almost, not prophylactically, but getting a secondary benefit of the um, treatment with diphenhydramine, it can be beneficial. Also, it's cheap. I think the article mentions how cheap it is as opposed to some right. more expensive agents. It's readily stocked and it's available. Right. Um, and it's something that patients have likely already been exposed to. So when the patient says that they're allergic to six different types of anesthetics, they've almost certainly had diphenhydramine when they develop such an allergy. Correct. So it's, course, um, yeah. it's a nice little trick to have in the box. I don't think I'm, I think I still love my, my lidocaine, <laughs> Absolutely. but for someone with a bad allergy, it makes sense. No, the Benadryl definitely, I think is a, is a great tool to have. It's something I, I won't forget after that experience for sure. And moving forward for the rest of my career, I'll, I'll always remember. And that person who says I'm allergic to all canes, you know, which they definitely come in saying. And now you've got a, a tool to to effectively treat them without without inducing that risk of, of real systemic illness. Well, thanks for coming. Absolutely, thank you for having me. I'm I'm glad to be here. Incidentally, uh, when we were uh, putting this together and put out a tweet on our Talks Now Twitter feed, uh, I got a response from Nadia Awad that she was writing a post on the same technique. You can read her post on her blog, Emergency Medicine PharmD at emfarmd.blogspot.com. So just goes to show that it's a, it's a small world. And uh, I'm glad that we were able to talk about a real-world scenario where this was used, and we'll put a link to that article on our website. Hello, and welcome to another exciting edition of Talks Now. I am Matt Zuckerman. With me today, uh, I am very pleased to introduce you to Tom Nappy, one of the fellows at the Rocky Mountain Poison and Drug Center. 
Hey there, Matt. Thanks for having me today. And I wanted to have Tom on the show today because uh, recently he had seen uh, a very interesting case. It's a bit of a novel case, and I thought it was a bit of a toxicology conundrum. And uh, honestly, is um, I think on every toxicologist's bucket list in terms of seeing something like this. So I thought it'd be fun to talk about today. So yeah. So what what happened? So we had the we had a call on this uh, middle aged woman who had a rather creative attempt, I guess, to try to commit suicide. Uh, and then she very soon after had second thoughts. So we got the call initially from the EMS providers who were really just, they were really first responders. They weren't EMTs or paramedics. They responded to the call for this woman who said she had tried to kill herself when she called 911 on her own. She was re- very intoxicated. She was pretty agitated. And her only real complaints were that she had some muscular pain, mostly in her legs. So they were getting her ready to bring her along to the uh, to the hospital, which was a good hour ride. So they were actually waiting for EMTs to come along with them and meet up with them. They noticed in the, in the, in the, in the house there in the kitchen that she had a nice box of wine that she was working on. And there was some kind of a substance around the wine on the table in the glass mixed with the wine. It was a like a like a grainy pellet of some sort and they were just kind of a mess all over the all over the place and she said that she drank it it was something from her her barn but she couldn't give you the exact name of it of course that's well of course i don't know if i know everything in my barn um um, yeah but but she said it was something it's a it was very effective at uh killing small animals for that matter so what they immediately did was they called the poison center and they they ran this by our our staff and they asked what they we thought it might have been and while they were actually talking to us, they got very excited because they said, "Oh, they said that they thought she was having a seizure." You could hear the woman screaming in pain in the background during this seizure. So we said, "You know, is she is she awake or is she alert? Can you give us a little more info?" And they said she's basically flailing about, back is arching, and and she's screaming. So, so it's with, kind of an odd seizure. It sounded, a little, you know, almost like a like she was remaining conscious during her seizure, if you will. <laughs> So she was faking. No, I'm sorry. We have <laughs> pseudo seizures. Pseudo seizure. Case closed. And, and we're that's, that's the podcast. There you go. There it is. So that's uh, that's the take home point. No, but that's so that's great. So that's our that's our tox dilemma. We have somebody who wants to kill themselves. They go to the barn. They get what sounds like I'm going to call it a rodenticide. Uh, just to throw some Latin in there. Kills small animals and maybe bigger animals. Mixes it with some wine. We don't know if it's red or white. I'm going to go with red. I do think it was red, and there were actually sulfites in the wine. So maybe this added to it or not. I'm not sure. I'm being facetious. Um, Here we go. Sulfite poisoning from the red wine. Maybe she got a little <laughs> headache. Maybe she maybe she was Asian and she got a flush. And then she's having the leg pain, and then she has a screaming seizure. Yes. With her arms and legs. Yes. And we're told there may have been some back arching. Back arching. Our back Didn't arching. witness this with our own eyes. Absolutely. The Latin, the fun Latin term for everyone there for like the back arching is the uh, pistotonus. That's yes. what I thought of immediately. Yeah. Absolutely. And then so some people out there are saying, aha, I think I know what this is. You've got your differential in tox for like the person who can scream during a seizure. And did they happen to comment on her facial features? They said she looked angry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that doesn't really help. That's a lot of that's a lot of intoxicated patients. Okay, all right. She looked angry. Okay. Anything else? Any more to add? 
At that point, well, no. The, right around this time is when EMS showed up and they were able to bring her to the hospital, which was an hour-long ride. So she gets to the hospital. Is she still screaming? So en route, um, we advised that they give her benzodiazepines to help relax her if this was Because you're a toxicologist. And you said, it's I know it all for everything. Because of the anger <laughs> that she was expressing, they were particularly happy with this recommendation. So over the course of the hour, they gave her plenty of benzodiazepines. They also gave her some fentanyl. So some of us already know what this is. I think you were probably excited to have a case like this. So what was it? So it was a uh, go-forgetter um, with strychnine in it. And they actually were able to find in the house, right not too far from where they were, uh, the box. And it said it was a, a 0.5% concentration of strychnine within these pellets. So she essentially took the go-forgetter poured it in her, her, her glass of wine. And we're not sure how many glasses of wine and you know how much go-forgetter versus wine concentration we've she ingested, but it was certainly enough to become symptomatic early on. However, with the benzodiazepine administration, she seemed to have been improving and just back to the leg cramping by the time she got to the ED. Still very angry, and I think that from what I was told, that the benzodiazepines were liberally used further, which may have helped ward off any further conscious seizures, if you will. True. Also, and if she uh, drinks wine, she might go into withdrawal. So I'm sure that, you know, there's multiple uses to, to give benzos to liberally to most patients. It really is an effective antidote. <laughs> yes. And so, so, she, so she had taken strychnine, which um, is what we're going to talk about today. So, and then we'll go back to the case. So basically with strychnine, uh, you have... Very limited options nowadays as to where you're going to find this. Um, Rodenticides, go forget her for that matter, is one of the uh, main ones. The highest concentration you're typically going to find, at least as I was able to uncover, was about a 0.5% concentration. So this was pretty much the strongest you could get. After that, it's just about the amount you're going to take. And the classic symptoms that you see are these conscious seizures, or some might refer to them as spinal seizure, the epistotonus, if you will. And it's very, it actually reminds you a little bit of what you would see with someone who has a, like a tetanus type epistotonus. Yeah, totally. And this is, this would be a totally different story if we like traveled back a hundred years. Like back in the twenties, strychnine was in lots of, um, rodenticides and poisons, but it was also in medicines. It was in stimulants. Mm-hmm. It was everywhere. And I think in the twenties, it was like the number one killer of children or something. I actually did, I came across that actually in a, in the text that, it was, in fact, the number one killer of children, and now it would probably be more or less. Strychnine, I think, is now the uh, number one killer of just the creative um, farmer. The creative farmer, absolutely. Yeah. If you're a depressed farmer, although if you're a depressed farmer internationally, it's usually organophosphates. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We use what we have available to us. So strychnine, yeah. So, so why does it look like tetanus? It's kind of a similar mechanism, although tetanus, you have the inhibition of like presynaptic glycine release. Uh, with the strychnine, it's along those same lines. It's actually, instead of inhibiting the release of the, of the glycine, it's a competitive inhibition at the glycine receptors. Right. So essentially, all of cells are either depolarizing or are moving in the other direction and becoming hyperpolarized. And if they're hyperpolarized, they're less likely to go off. And naturally, glycine is a uh, inhibitory neuro- neurotransmitter, so that's what it basically does. It opens the ligand-gated chloride channel, allowing that inward flux of uh, chloride, leading to that hyperpolarization that you're talking about. And that's how you get your 
decreased neuroexcitability. But when strychnine blocks that binding of the glycine to that specific uh, site of the chloride channel, that's how you get the loss of inhibition, that the loss of the glycine inhibition in the ventral horns, which uh, essentially leads to this opposing muscle, muscular contraction and loss of uh, the inhibition of different reflex arcs that are generating from the spinal cord. Cool. So yeah, so normally the nerve cells, nerve cells are just there, just ready to fire if they can. And there are different stimulatory things that cause them to fire as they get closer to their depolarization threshold. And normally chloride is our friend because it chills the cell out and chloride in the cell hyperpolarizes it and keeps it from depolarizing. And one of the ways that chloride is regulated that you mentioned is this essentially glycine ligand gated chloride channel. And by blocking glycine, you get less chloride in the cell, which moves the cell ever closer towards its depolarization and kind of firing, and then the cell just goes crazy. So what you're saying is that we need to give them benzodiazepines? Well, that's true for everyone, yes. Because what we want to do is we want to get more chloride in the cell. It's like if there was just chloride in that cell, then the cell would be a little more hyperpolarized. And luckily, the cell has multiple pathways for chloride. Which brings us to the most universal and effective treatment that we can basically provide. Benzodiazepines. benzodiazepines. Yeah, benzos. Benzos, benzos, benzos. The only thing benzos don't fix is benzodiazepine overdose. And realistically, they probably won't make it that much worse. So yeah, so benzos don't work through the glycine receptor, right? No, well, they, you know, of course, they would increase GABA. Um, they would work with the GABA-A receptor, most, most your benzodiazepines. And it would just be another route for neuroinhibition. So giving your benzodiazepine will provide you with neuroinhibition from the brain to the spinal cord, and that'll help suppress that reflex arc and that hyperexcitability that we see. Uh, if the benzodiazepine is, you know, is ex- being exhausted and, and the symptoms are persistent and severe and you're just not having that effect that you want, you can maybe use barbiturates. You could also use propofol. And in, in worst case scenarios, you could use a paralytic agent. However, the important thing to realize is that you would have to use a non-depolarizing agent because your depolarizing agents such as succinylcholine are going to lead to um, muscular twitching, muscular contractions, and th- those are actually contraindicated for that that reason because even the even the littlest amount of excitability for someone who's poisoned with strychnine is going to lead them to having those violent, uh, painful contractions. So the yeah. Sucks is bad. Sucks is bad. Yeah. yeah. It's- and I, I love the description is even like, even in some of these patients, they are so ready. They are so much like a loaded gun ready to twitch that even the act of turning on or off a light, the stimulus of yeah. the light can precipitate a seizure. And the classic story, I think, is somebody who goes in, they've had a seizure, the physician goes in to examine them and touches them, and that causes a seizure. And um, while I like to think that my touch is electric, I've never <laughs> had that effect. And it's, yeah, it's just all the muscles twitching and it can look like tetanus because tetanus also interferes with that pathway except tetanus doesn't block glycine it prevents the release of glycine right and with tetanus you might find like a wound or some other tetanus related sign and then i guess with with with, to add to what you're saying about the intense muscular contraction that they're experiencing um, i guess one of the things we should really kind of point out is that the most feared uh, consequence would probably be respiratory depression. Your diaphragm is a skeletal muscle. You can get significant contraction. Um, you can develop respiratory acidosis. 
with all this contraction, you could also go into rhabdo. You can have a lactatemia. So you can see, respectively, that renal failure or a metabolic acidosis can also occur. So mental status might not stay normal during these conscious seizures in the long run as they get sicker. So they might actually um, <laughs> they might actually start to become a little more obtunded or, or lethargic. As yeah, no, that's a good point. On. That's a good point because all of us have, have treated a seizure patient in the ED and they start to have a seizure and everyone freaks out and it goes away after 30 seconds and an hour later they want a sandwich. And so it's a very scary encounter, but who really cares about a seizure? And in this particular case, it's not even cent- It's not even uh, usually mediated through the brain. It's mediated through the spinal cord, so their, their mentation is normal. So who cares about a seizure? And I think with these cases, they usually describe the episodes as like a couple minutes long, but it sounds like some of these patients can just keep having them to the point that they get rhabdo and acidotic and they don't breathe off their CO2 like they should. They don't compensate. I think there was a patient that went down to the sixes in terms of their pH and had a had a lactate of like 30, um, which is pretty – and survived, which is pretty good. So, yeah, but if they keep seizing or if they keep destroying their muscles, then they sometimes get altered mental status. <laughs> which I guess is not that uncommon, <laughs> the altered mental status for that matter. So do you so. think the anger was a result of the strychnine? It's hard to say what came first, uh, the chicken or the egg. But I know that when we last followed up on her, she was still significantly angry. So they actually did give her more benzos, uh, but they were upset that we, I guess, couldn't move forward with having to intubate because lucky for her, she didn't develop any respiratory paralysis, respiratory depression. And although being a little bit acidotic, having a little bit bump in her CK and lactate, it wasn't significant enough to have a metabolic acidosis either. But she was angry about it. She was still angry, yeah. yeah. That's that's too bad. Yeah, so that's a good point, yeah. So the treatment, benzos, benzos. If benzos don't work, your friend is the barbs and the propofol. If you're going to depress somebody's respiratory status, then you might need to tube them. Or if you just want to, like, stop the muscle activity, similar to serotonin syndrome, right? With serotonin syndrome, you often use benzos. You often might use an anti-serotonergic drug, such as ciproheptadine. But if serotonin syndrome gets really bad and you want to stop muscle contraction, you just intubate them and paralyze them. And the best part is with that is that although we're always running EEGs when we paralyze people, this EEG would probably be negative. Probably. And that's where it's important to actually, if you are going to paralyze somebody with this type of toxicity, it is very important to use sedation. Hopefully you've already used a whopping amount of benzos, but because their mental status can be normal, it's important to also use uh, sedation to be humane. Uh, the one other thing we should touch base on is, so we talked about diagnosis, we talked about treatment. And usually people do well with this. Like in the last in the last 10 years, the number of cases in the NMPDS has really dropped. And the number of deaths is, is down in the single digits. But, um, but in terms of treatment, if somebody swallows a bunch of strychnine, should you use charcoal or not? And I feel like as, as toxicologists, we have largely moved away from charcoal. Just to be thorough, we should say that charcoal actually does bind strychnine fairly well. I think there's a great case in Goldfranks a scientist in front of the French Academy downing a lethal dose of strychnine and a bunch of charcoal and surviving, which is always memorable. I would not do that, but it can bind it. The one thing is because you can lose your protective airway reflexes from the strychnine, aspirating the charcoal is a huge concern. So I guess when you might use that might be like if somebody is already tubed for some reason and you want to give a dose to bind it. But by that point, it's probably so far behind that I don't know that it would change outcomes. And I don't know a specific case that I would use charcoal for it, but it does bind charcoal. 
And we should also mention that um, strychnine is an old poison, um, and like many old poisons, it's a botanical poison. And it comes from the alkaloid itself. The strychnine alkaloid comes from uh, strychnos nux vomica, strychnos ignati, and strychnos tiente. I believe that's also the incantation that you can say over a strychnine patient if you wish to ward off the evil strychnine. And then they start seizing and everyone thinks you're some kind of warlock. Exactly. That's probably what it was used for. But strychnine, um, still out there, definitely internationally, still going to find it in a lot of rodenticides. And you're going to continue to find it because it works. It, it kills small animals and it can kill large animals. No, that's well, that's a great example. Right. I hope that uh, in the future, if you see someone who seems to be having an awake seizure, in addition to pseudo-seizure or tetanus, you maybe consider the, uh, the go-forgetter. And make sure to give that person benzodiazepines. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and call your local poison control center because... This is every toxicologist loves this case. Well, I want to thank you for being with me today, Tom. Yeah, th- thank you for having me. I really appreciate uh, appreciate joining you. Great. That's another episode of Talks Now. Talks Now is produced by Matt Zuckerman with support from the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology. You can reach out to us by emailing us at talksnow at talksnow.org. That's T-O-X-N-O-W. Or via our Facebook page or tweet us at Talks Now. Talks Now.